a morning. Lots to celebrate. And uh, you've seen our gratitude uh, wall out there. I would encourage you after the service, uh, make sure you grab a card and pin up something you are grateful for. Well, this is the fourth sermon in our series in the book of Acts that we're marching through this fall. If you have your print Bible, we are in chapter 12. I want to begin, by though, by telling you about a woman who wrote into Reader's Digest. And she had a very insightful story about the bad choices that human beings sometimes make. This woman says, An enthusiastic but somewhat unscrupulous salesman was waiting to see the purchasing agent at the engineering firm where my husband worked. The salesman there was to submit his company's bid for the work. He couldn't help but notice, however, that the competitor's bid was on the purchasing agent's desk. He tried to resist. He he didn't want to look at it. And then he was waiting and waiting for the purchasing agent to come back and finally he couldn't stand it anymore. And there was a, he looked over at the, the bid and he could see everything except the numbers, the actual price quote. There was a can of juice right over it. And he's like, I shouldn't. Yeah, I want to. Oh, I can't take it. And he grabbed the hole of that can and lifted it up and was horrified that a thousand little metal BBs scattered all over the desk and the floor. He was caught. They had set it up on purpose. You know, Herod Agrippa, the main character in our passage today, was far worse than that unscrupulous salesman. But he too believed he would not be caught. Let's jump in and hear the account of how one man's wickedness and pride led to his downfall. We're going to pick it up in verse 19 of chapter 12. After Herod had made a thorough search for him, the apostle Peter, and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Then Herod went from Judea to Caesarea and stayed there. He had been quarreling with the people of Tyre and Sidon. They now joined together and sought an audience with him. After securing the support of Blastus, a trusted personal servant of the king, they asked for peace because they depended on the king's country for food. On the appointed day, Herod, wearing his royal robe, sat on his throne and delivered a public address to the people. They shouted, This is the voice of a God, not of a man. So we got to meet Herod last week in our sermon. Uh, This is one terrible guy. He imprisoned the apostle Peter. He put the apostle James to death when he couldn't find a reason uh, for the escape. He decided, well, it must be the guard's fault, and he orders that these innocent guards be executed. Horrific. Now, someone at this point could say that is a lot of injustice. That's a lot of wrongdoing. And they would say something like, see, God doesn't care. These guys are innocent, but they will still be executed for something they didn't do. This isn't fair at all. Where is God's justice? Huh? Tell me. We're going to find out in this passage, though, that God did see all those acts of injustice. It didn't escape his notice. 
But of course, Herod doesn't stop there. He adds to the list of evil things that he is doing. The text tells us he is angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon. Scholars have looked back and decided, well, it must have been about a trade dispute or something like that. Now, the usual way to deal with that is you'd have the governor come to the palace in Caesarea, and they would meet, and they'd hash it out and figure out the problem and come to some sort of agreement. Not Herod. He just decides he's going to starve the entire population of those two cities. Again, someone could say, where is God? Why doesn't he notice? Why doesn't he do something about evil Herod? It could seem like God isn't noticing, but we'll find out that in fact God knew every detail of what was occurring. But don't worry, Herod isn't done yet. So they sent a delegation to make peace with them. Their cities are desperate. They need food. So they decide, you know what, the best way to get what we want is we have to flatter this king. So Herod makes a big show, puts on his finest royal robes, sets up his throne where the crowd can gather in the stadium in front of him. It would have been a combination of local residents from Caesarea as well as this delegation from Tyre and Sidon. In 2012, I actually got to go to Israel. Amazing trip. Got to go all around. One of the places we went was Caesarea. And you can walk right into the ruins of this amazing amphitheater. I think it was the same place. Absolutely stunning. Amazing. All the pig people, they're ready to flatter him. The crowd goes over the top. They give him a standing ovation. And then they make this statement, this is the voice of a God, not a man. Now I entitled this sermon, A Fatal Choice. And this is the moment where Herod has to choose. He's got two options. Option A He says, no, people, no, I am your king, but I'm not a god. There's only one true god, and I am not him. That would be option A. Or option B is, say nothing and allow all that blasphemous praise to go on to him, declaring that he is a god. Now, if Herod does choose option B, then he is in direct violation of what the Bible says in both Proverbs 3.34 and again, in repeated in the second half of the Bible in James 4, 6, it says this, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. God is patient with us as human beings, giving us many, many opportunities to stop the evil, do a 180 degree turnaround, ask for his forgiveness for our sins, but at some point, judgment falls. Let's find out what Herod decided and how God responded. We're going to pick it up in verse 23. Immediately, because Herod did not give praise to God, an angel of the Lord struck him down, and he was eaten by worms and died. Wow, that is an awful way to die. It appears that Galatians 6-7 came true for Herod in that moment. Galatians 6-7 says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. It turns out God was watching all the evil Herod did all the way along. From the killing of the Apostle James to the imprisonment of Peter 
to the execution of those innocent guards, to the cutting off of the food to those two cities, Tyre and Sidon, and finally the acceptance of that blasphemous flattery and praise when people called Herod a god. God was watching. He saw it all. And after giving Herod many, many opportunities to turn around, to stop the evil, God finally says, I am going to do that for you. Now, you may be here this morning going, Darren, that all is an amazing story. I'm, I'm into this. I'm captivated by it. How do I know this is true? Like, did any other source outside the Bible ever record this event or this king? Like, do we have any independent collaboration of it? That's a really great question because there is. Some of you may know the name Josephus. He was an interesting guy. He was ethnically Jewish, but he worked for the Romans, and he became kind of their historian. And so every battle, Josephus would go along and record what happened, every event, every big thing in Roman history. Well, this was a big deal, and so Josephus was there at the moment. And this is his account written outside of the Bible. Josephus was not a friend of the Christian faith. He was pro-Roman. So scholars look back on this as a very reliable testimony. He had nothing to gain by supporting it. This is what he wrote. On the second day of which shows he put on a garment made wholly of silver and of a contexture truly wonderful, and came into the theater early in the morning, at which time the silver of his garment, being illuminated by the fresh reflection of the sun's rays upon it, shone out after a surprising manner, and was so resplendent as to spread a shock and horror over those that looked intently upon him. And presently his flatterers cried out that he was a god." And they added, Be thou merciful to us, for although we have hitherto reverenced thee only as a man, yet shall we henceforth only as a superior to mortal nature. Upon this the king did neither rebuke them nor reject their impious flattery. But as he presently afterward looked up, he saw an owl sitting on a certain rope over his head and immediately understood that this bird was the messenger of ill tidings. And Herod fell into the deepest sorrow. A severe pain arose in his belly and began in a most violent manner. He there looked upon his friends and said, I, whom you call a God, am commanded presently to depart this life. While providence thus reproves the lying words you just now said to me, and I, who was by you called a myrtle, am immediately to be hurried away by death. What a fascinating account in history. You know, this is Thanksgiving weekend, and I thought, what an interesting passage to land on on Thanksgiving. But really, if you think about it, Herod is like the poster boy for anti-Thanksgiving. He is just not thankful for anything, and he's not going to give acknowledgement to anybody, certainly not God. And yet, it's such a beautiful, healthy thing to stop in life at least one time a year. We should be doing it all the time. But at least this weekend and be stopped and, and think about all the things that we have been blessed with. All the simple things. I mean, the harvest 
the, the vegetables, the fruit, all that stuff for our house, our car, our truck, our motorcycle, for friends, family, maybe for the local church that we belong to. And if we're followers of Jesus, then we have the greatest gratitude of all, that he changed our lives in this life and the life to come. And in this moment, Herod is the exact opposite, neither acknowledging God nor grateful. But still, our modern Canadian society might say, striking Herod dead, causing worms to eat him from the inside out, seems a bit harsh for a God of love, doesn't it? And really, this is a pretty unpopular notion in our culture right now. People tend to care for the softer virtues of God. Love, tenderness. But they also forget that God is holy. He's righteous. He's just. Both are true about God at exactly the same time. It is absolutely true that God is love. He's compassionate. He is merciful, long-suffering. The Bible declares that from end to end. One of the passages is 1 John 4, 8. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. Psalm 103.8, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. But he is also just and he's moral, a purely good being whose decisions are not based on modern Western sentimentalism. Pastor and author Mark Clark says it this way, He's in, in fact, God is good because he is just. Because God is a perfect just judge, his justice is measured and it's perfect. Far different from the punishment that we as human beings are able to give and far different from what we personally have often experienced in this life. You see, we as human beings, we're hardwired to cry out for justice and against injustice. We accept that if a person murders someone or rapes, that they should be held accountable. If that person were to get off because of a loophole in the justice system, what do we cry? Injustice. We picket large corporations that knock down old growth trees. We, we throw paint on people who make coats out of animals. We post videos on social media calling for end to the captivity of whales. Why? Because we have deep yearnings within us that say injustice is wrong and it has to be paid for. On the night of April 15, 2014, 276 mostly Christian female students aged 16 to 18 were kidnapped by the Islamic terrorist group Boko Haram from the government girls' secondary school in Chibok, Borno State, Nigeria. Mark Clark, again, is helpful. He comments on this incident. He says, do you think that the parents of these little girls have a problem with the idea of a place where evil men get punished for their crimes by a just judge? Do you think they object to a time when God will pronounce final and deserved judgment on these men? I can assure you they aren't losing any sleep over it. In fact, any concept of God without his final expression to them is less than just, and he may not be worth worshiping at all. When I was a student at Regent College uh, doing my master's degree, they had a man named Miroslav Wolf. He is a professor at Yale University come and speak. 
had this series of lectures called the Lang Lectures. Now, Miroslav is a fascinating person. He now obviously lives in the eastern United States as a professor at Yale. But he grew up in the years when Yugoslavia broke apart and descended into civil war and chaos. He grew up in the 90s in Croatia, as Serbia and Croatia, there was just horrific genocide. And out of that whole experience, he wrote this amazing statement. He says, it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis of God's refusal to judge. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, it will invariably die. You see, he's saying, he's saying if, if you're home here in Canada, you're by your fire, you got your latte, it's easy to think up a thought like, no, nah, God shouldn't judge. If God is loving, he shouldn't ever judge evil or wrong. But he's saying when you grow up in it, when you see your families die, when you see the neighborhood town eliminated by an army, an awful moment of genocide, he said your cart cries out for justice. Now, here's the amazing thing. God striking someone dead in judgment during their lifetime is extremely rare in all of history. For the billions and billions and billions of the rest of us, God gives us thousands of opportunities over a lifetime to turn to Jesus in repentance and faith, to do that 180 degree turnaround. In fact, it says this beautiful verse in 2 Peter 3.9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. What an incredible, beautiful wholeness that brings to understanding. One half is the profound truth that God will judge evil and wrongdoing at the end of history. From every betrayal, every affair, every human trafficking incident, to rape, murder, and war, evil will ultimately not be swept under the carpet. That is good news for anyone who's been wronged and hurt in deep and profound ways. That is one half. The other half, anyone can turn to Jesus in repentance and be completely forgiven. Even the worst evil schmuck you can think of can turn to Jesus in repentance and faith and be completely and totally forgiven and cleansed. When followers of Jesus stand before the judgment throne of God, they will be covered in the righteousness, the moral purity of Jesus. No guilt, no fear, no worries for all eternity. Both sides together make up the wholeness of the message of the gospel. Pastor and author Tim Keller says it like this. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet we, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. But it is a choice. We've seen what Herod chose. We saw his dramatic and climactic end. <coughs> his death and all the surrounding works of God caused people 
around to make a different choice. And we're going to pick it up in verses 24 and 25, the last two verses of chapter 12. But to spread the, but the word of God continued to spread and flourish. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. To every coin, there is two sides. We have seen one side of the coin this morning, Herod Agrippa, full of sin and pride to such an extent that God judged him right then and there. Herod was a human being that God had given free will to. Herod had a choice, and he chose no. But many people, it tells us, made the opposite choice. The word of God continued to spread and flourish. You know, God has a long-established pattern of bringing silver linings out of bad things. What Herod chose and the resulting consequences created a buzz, created interest, caused people to reverently approach God. Into that openness comes the good news of the gospel, and it flourished. I looked up those two words in the original language that was written in, in Greek, and the word for spread is euxanon, and it means to become greater, to grow, to increase, to spread. And the word for flourish is apluthaneto, advance and gain, multiply and flourish. I think it tells us that people's respect and understanding and acceptance both got deeper and it got wider. More and more and more people followed Christ. This is the exact opposite of Herod. These people aren't proud when they come to faith, but rather they're humble. They're washed clean, restored, and given a new direction and purpose. So what about you and I? Do we take God? Do we take the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, one God? Do we take God seriously? Or do we actually treat Him a little bit flippantly and casually? Are we more wrapped up in our own pride than the flourishing of the gospel? Good questions to ponder. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, may you and I say no to the fatal choice Herod made, yes, to seeing the Word of God continue to spread and flourish. And I pray this Thanksgiving Sunday that it flourishes in our families, in our workplaces, and in our town. Amen? Please pray with me.